Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 2, Gorton's Gatekeeper. It was easy to scare off the women that I didn't want around, and Gorton had plenty of them. All I had to do was give them annoyed looks of suspicion and an attitude that read, you're not wanted here. The best trick of all was to ask them if they knew the woman who had just recently spent the night with Gorton. Most times they didn't, and it always worked like a charm. In my mind, it was Sue that belonged in Gorton's bed. So I went to work trying to make that happen. On nights when she walked me home from the restaurant, I would beg her to stay with me until Gorton got home, which was sometimes never. Or when Gorton and I were off to some bluegrass festival or a potluck supper, I would suggest that we invite Sue. Gorton was a bright light, hard to resist, even for me. He was goofy and strange, but he had magnanimous qualities, and he was somewhat of a superstar. Sue tried to steer clear of Gorton's charms and of all my matchmaking work, which had become obnoxiously obvious. Because he was preoccupied with saving the world, Gorton wasn't known to be the best boyfriend. His calling didn't leave much time for me or anyone else. But I was strong-willed and tenacious, and soon enough, we had a strange little family unit. Our first official outing together was at a wedding in the Ozark Mountains. Gorton had become an ordained minister of the Universal Life Church by filling out the tiny application on the back of a matchbox cover. He had the legal and spiritual right to perform weddings, and as strange as it was, hippies did get married. It was raining on the day of the wedding, so everyone crowded into a small cabin, imbibed with the homey smells of wood-burning stove, luscious pine, and bowls of potluck vegetables. The men dressed in their finest bell-bottom corduroys and pretty paisley shirts, while the women floated and jiggled braless in long gauzy dresses with flowers in their hair. The not-so-slender hippie men wore overalls without a shirt, bare feet, and bandanas on their heads. The bigger they were, the more hair they seemed to have. The grown-ups sipped on moonshine whiskey from canning jars, smoked pot, and talked loudly while children ran around wild and free. Most of the kids were too young for me, so I stood alone in a corner listening to the bluegrass band. I watched the wedding party as if it were the just-out-of-reach colorful specks of light spinning around the end of a kaleidoscope. People knew who I was, but I didn't know who they were, and I was still too shy to make small talk, 
so thank God for the band. After watching them for the longest time, with the steadfast focus of a spooked owl, my body couldn't help but respond. I didn't even feel shy anymore. I just started bobbing up and down, hopping from one foot to the other. Body loose, yet controlled by the fast and furious beat of the music. Once I started, I couldn't stop. With each pick, pluck, and strum, I was spun into the welcoming dance of the party, and I became just another colorful speck of light spinning around at the end of a kaleidoscope. Sue and Gordon got drunk that night, and it softened both their edges. Sue looked even more like a young hippie maiden, but with glassy eyes and the hiccups. Gordon became a liquid version of himself, melting into the couch with a crooked smile that expressed the very deep thoughts that were fading in and out of his mind. They both slurred every word, but they didn't scare me, not like my father used to. They didn't look like they belonged together as a couple. Each was so independent. But as I watched them sink deeper into the couch, it made sense, and the picture of it seared into my memory as something that was meant to be. First Christmas in Fayetteville. Once upon a time, I believed in Santa Claus, and I tried to believe in my mother too. But those childhood beliefs were shattered to the ground, like a Christmas ornament too heavy for the tender branch of a tree that tried to support its beauty. And because of that, I didn't want to open the Christmas card that came from Diana. If I hadn't have been so curious, I would have just thrown it away. And I should have thrown it away because her words were oh so typically mean and crass. You're a bad seed child, and you will only be allowed to return home when I get good reports about your behavior from Gordon. Merry Christmas. Sue read the card and got really pissed off. She told me that my mother was an asshole and that I should just try and ignore her. I wanted to, but what if she came and got me? My life would be ruined. I tried to ignore her words, but they were so hurtful. Why did she hate me so much? Sue took me out for a long walk and tried to calm me down. She told me that I wasn't a bad seed child because there wasn't such a thing. I didn't believe her. My mother knew me better than Sue did, and it was only a matter of time before Sue would know the truth. If there was a plan for me to return to Diana, I knew nothing about it, and I didn't ask. Why remind people that I was sitting in limbo? In my most secret of secret thoughts, I wondered what Gorton was telling Diana. Was he telling her that I was a bad child? And if so, was he doing that on purpose to keep me? I was trying to be good, but now I wondered which way I should go with my behavior. Good might get me sent home. Bad would keep me in Fayetteville, and none of it made sense. I threw the card in the garbage and just hoped for the best. 
But for Gordon, his best was not good enough. And within the first six months of me being in Fayetteville, the way it is served its last free meal and closed its open-minded doors forever. Mother's Day. In the spring of fourth grade, we made little potted plants for Mother's Day. Impatience. I knew I would be giving the flowers to Sue, but something about the name reminded me of my mother. She was a very impatient woman, and she loved flowers. She grew them well, and unlike her children, her plants always thrived. I knew it was wrong, but I missed my mother. I would have preferred to be giving this present to her if she were a nice lady and a good mom, but that wasn't the reality. The reality was that my whole class had mothers, and I felt embarrassed to be without one. We had not heard from Paul or Diana since the Christmas card, and I had a nagging, or should I say, hopeful but with regret, feeling that we would never hear from them again. With a strange sensation of declaration, I presented the little pink flowers with dark purple leaves to Sue and proceeded forward happily with my new life. Cleveland Street House. Gordon believed it took a village to raise a child, but in my case it was going to take an army. I was growing confident in my freedom and the bad habits that I had learned from Diana, an explosive temper and a self-involved attitude, were beginning to express themselves in our new home of communal living. Cleveland Street, as we called it, because it was on Cleveland Street, was a two-story house located at the bottom of a steep hill. A railroad track ran along one side of the house, and the sounds of the approaching trains were a comfort as they gave the impression of stirring the hot, stagnant southern air. Bob and Sue moved in with us along with several other people. We brought the round table from the way it is and continued the restaurant's open-door policy, which kept Cleveland Street lively with the music, the musings, and the comings and goings of wayward hippies, animals, and children. It was a familiar and comfortable environment because I had lived there before in my mind. It was the manifestation of the daydream I used to have every single day in my bedroom on the Cranberry Bogs in Massachusetts. I was living the life of the carefree girl who opened the door to the mailman, but my knees were still crooked, my hair was still frizzy, and I didn't like radishes. Gordon was managing a restaurant called The Deluxe, and Sue worked for him in the kitchen. It was the same restaurant that Diana had been kicked out of years earlier for wearing too much patchouli oil. On her way out the door, she made a loud and rambunctious scene, babbling on and on about her civil rights 
but no one cared. She just smelled. I was enjoying my identity as Gorton's ward, and Sue was sinking deeper into the role of mother, which left her, unfortunately, after all her good deeds, the object of my rebellion. For such a young lady, she did her best to be a good mom, but I didn't make it easy. I was fickle, and I flirted with the attentions of other women. Maybe I thought they would be better mothers, as if they wanted to be. Or maybe I just didn't care about moms at all. Whatever the case may be, I attached myself to Pam and Shana, two of the other women who lived at Cleveland Street House. They had opposite personalities, and I liked them both. Pam was a loud, big-breasted woman who wore Guatemalan peasant shirts and had wild, kinky, curly hair. Sue thought she was a bad influence on me because she would tell me provocative things like, you'll enjoy the smell of your vagina when you grow up, which I thought was gross, but I loved her for it. She had a big mouth, and she used it proudly, whereas I had always been shunned for mine. Pam and her boyfriend, a quiet man who faded into the background like most of us did in the presence of Pam, would take me for weekends to their shack in the country. They kept the hills alive with the sound of their very loud sex while I spent my time hanging outside with a horse named Sundance. He was a little golden pony, and I pretended that he was mine, but I didn't ride him much because he was lazy. He would graze next to the black pond that was infested with water moccasins, eating one blade of grass at a time, while I sat under the weeping willow tree doing nothing, not even daydreaming. Pam moved to South America for a couple of months, and when she returned to Fayetteville, she let me hang out at her house, listening to albums, even when she wasn't home. There were two that I played over and over by an artist who left me wide-eyed and saturated with the possibility of a new existence far beyond the constraints of this hippie kingdom. His name was David Bowie, and the albums were David Live and Aladdin Sane. The lusciously warm and roaming vibrato of his voice burrowed into my soul, and his music sounded like it had come from a land way across the sea. As I rocked firmly in Pam's wooden rocking chair, listening and staring at the album covers, I was mesmerized by the notion that a man could be so pretty. This angular, effeminate creature was neither hippie nor straight, which is what we called non-hippies, and his sexy affectations revealed to me that men did not have to be monotonously manly, hairy, and boring. And in this, I found pleasure, comfort, and a decision. I would someday have David Bowie as my own, or at least a boyfriend who emulated these qualities.
Shana was an artist who had traveled to places like India and Afghanistan, countries that most Arkansans had never heard of. Sue thought she was a better role model because she was gentle, calm, and contained. The female version of Bob Tarlow, very well behaved. I think she was a Buddhist and I had to work hard to get her attention. She brought me to the University of Arkansas where she taught a batik class. The smell of vegetable dye, melting wax, and raw muslin almost filled me with the desire to be an artist, but my work was rough and bulky and completely without finesse. The hippies always lied and told me how great it was, but compared to Shana's work, I knew better. Sue's opinion about Shana shifted after she took me to see a film called The Nun and the Devil. The plot was complicated, but that didn't matter. It was the imagery that left the most lasting effect. Even though I had seen a lot of naked people doing strange things with their bodies, I wasn't prepared for the graphic sex scenes between nuns at a convent. I watched nervously with squinted and mostly shut eyes as the nuns were tortured and sexually violated by priests with crucifixes. When I dared reopen my eyes, the last scene I remembered was a pile of dead nuns stacked and ready for the pyre. I didn't know what I was seeing or what it all meant, but I dared not ask. I was so proud that Shana had invited me to go with her, and I didn't want her to think it was a mistake or that I was too immature, but it was a mistake. When we got home, I jumped up onto a kitchen counter and just sat there. I didn't realize until someone asked me a question that I had lost my voice. I wanted to reply, but I couldn't. My brain seemed empty of all words, and even if they were in there, it appeared that I had forgotten how to speak them. It wasn't on purpose, and it was out of my control. I couldn't think or speak. I could only feel the movie, and it felt bad, really bad. In order to forget about it, everything had to shut down. This lasted for two whole days, and Sue was pissed. Jesus Freaks. I spent my first true summer in Fayetteville gallivanting around town, trying out new people, and getting to know every nook and cranny. The shops on Dixon Street, the main drag, were either hippie or college, and I made it my duty to investigate them all. Gorton had associations with all the bars and restaurants, so I knew them intimately, but there were a couple of darkened storefronts that I wanted to check out, considering how they had opened up rather suddenly. From the outside, they gave every indication of a cool little hippie shop. But when I looked closer, 
which I had to because they were so dimly lit. I saw little Jesus crosses scattered amongst the familiar paraphernalia of peace signs and tie-dye. Although I did not know much in life, I pretty much knew hippies, and so the crucifixes puzzled me. I hadn't seen Jesus on the cross in the proper way since I left Cleveland. I wandered into one of these stores to see what was up. Immediately upon entering, the hair on the back of my neck stood straight up. The people I encountered had vacant, plastered-on smiles and a dull, glazed look in their eyes. They seemed to move their bodies in stilted motions like zombies beckoning me. Join us. Join us. Join us. The store was quiet and barren, and all my senses screamed, Run for your life! I never lingered long enough to find out what they were selling, but I got the sense that if I stayed, I would get stuck on sticky flypaper with people who were creepy and no fun at all. I soon learned that these were a new kind of hippie that had sprouted up silently and suddenly. They were called Jesus Freaks, and no, they weren't any fun at all.